right. Welcome back to season two, episode one of the Detection Challenging Paradigms podcast. I'm your host, Jared Atkinson, with your other host, Jonathan Johnson and Luke Payne, our producer. Today, we're lucky to have two great guests with us, Grant and Dev. And they they actually kind of sparked our interest because they released a a paper, an academic paper recently about how they uh, designed uh, an approach to detecting lateral movement that I thought was generally quite novel and actually appeared to be quite uh, accurate. So uh, Grant is currently a postdoc at UC San Diego, and Dev is the head of security at Figma Design. Figma Design, right, Dev? Yep. Yep. Okay, and uh, and they kind of met while they were working on uh, their PhDs at UC Berkeley, um, and that's kind of how they crossed paths. Um, and so what we wanted to do was kind of give uh, Grant and Dev an opportunity to describe kind of how they approach this idea of detecting lateral movement at scale, um, maybe what the original idea was, maybe some of the the trials and tribulations across along the way, how they actually implemented it to uh, test it and all those types of things. Um, and then we wanted to kind of dig into it a little bit more and talk about how we can learn from that kind of in the practical side of, of security, right? So um, I'll turn it over to Grant or Dev to kind of Talk to us about Hopper, which is the approach that they're using that they designed and uh, and walk us through that process. Yeah, so I guess um, when we started this project, we'd been looking at the academic literature a lot. And, you know, obviously with all these attacks, we've been thinking about how can we better secure enterprises. Um, and so we were looking a lot at the academic literature and we didn't see a whole other approaches that seemed like they could scale well in terms of false positives and how much they could detect. Um, and so we started off with a pretty simple premise, which is you're moving around an enterprise. And so you have all these... Um, events of movements that we looked at, let's say like Windows, you know, 4624 logs and SSH logs. And the idea was to build a graph of where people were moving via what machines using what credentials. And so sort of a, a natural way to think about lateral movement, you have machines in the enterprise and you have edges, which are these logins between them. Um, and the goal was to say, can we identify weird paths of movement, weird sequences of logins that people are making that might indicate lateral movement? And figuring out how to define or detect what a suspicious path was but actually took a lot of time. It took several months of iteration. We were thinking, oh, you know, a lot of the approaches in the academic literature said, let's just use anomaly detection. Let's find like really rare paths of, of people that rarely make this kind of a movement between machines. And, you know, anyone who's looked at real world data is going to tell you that's going to generate way too many false positives. Right? You have all sorts of random noise. And we saw this a bunch. Like there were just people who are on color rotations, accessing machines that they don't really access before. And so that's not the one. You have people coming from vacation or you employees and you know, you've never seen that path before. So that's an alarm. And so there are just way too many false positives to do that. Um, and so we were thinking about like, okay, so what, what, what can we do better? How can we find paths that actually reflect our movement, but don't generate all these false positives? Um, and so we were reading through a bunch of reports thinking about sort of why people are making loud movement. And we came up with the idea that, you know, a lot of loud movement paths sort of have these two key properties, right? Um, when attackers do loud movement, they're often doing it because they've compromised a user who doesn't have access to the resources or data they want. And so what they'll need to do with loud movement is they'll move to other machines that that user does have access to, um, compromise credentials, or run some like, um, I don't know, credential exploit like Kerberos thing or golden tickets, um, things like that to get another set of credentials that are more privileged. And so if we look at the paths that the user's making and the attacker's making from their starting point to their destination, they're gonna use some set of credentials that looks weird. Right? They started on one user's machine, and they're starting then to use another user's credentials or another set of credentials. And so that's one thing we looked for in these paths is we said, paths of loud movement are going to switch credentials or use a different set of credentials. 
And then the second thing we look for in these paths are um, they're starting on the machine and they're accessing a set of resources that that machine's sort of owner or typical set of credentials doesn't have access to. And so that's sort of the second property we look for. Um, and, and we were looking at a lot of the literature reports sort of in, in you know, all these different breach reports issued by vendors. Um, and it seemed like a lot of our movement paths followed that pattern where they had these two properties. And so our system basically looks for, um, you know, builds this graph of movement. It tries to look for login sequences that have these two key properties. When in our path, we say this is sort of, we're looking for uh, causal paths. And so this, this idea is that like, a lot of the data we get in enterprise logs are just pointwise events, but we need to string them together to see which ones are sort of logically made by the same user. And so we have some very simple techniques to say, okay, this sequence of logins is made by this one particular user. Um, and this, this basically this user should be responsible for making this movement. And let's try and see if this user is, is either using weird credentials along the way or accessing machines that shouldn't. And that's really the core idea of it, sort of looking for movement the user makes that is using sort of those two weird properties. Gotcha. Okay, so like uh, one of the things that you found from looking at the prior work was generally the idea that just because something's anomalous doesn't mean it's bad, and just because something's bad doesn't mean it's anomalous. It sounds like, right? Yeah, yeah. With that, with an emphasis on the first point, because I think a lot of a lot of both vendors, I'd say, and academia is like, oh, machine learning. Let's just use it and find anomalies. And it's like really tempting in theory, but like as I'm sure you know, and mm -hmm. some of the listeners know, it's just not going to work. You know. Yeah, one of the one of the pro problems that we were talking about kind of before we started recording was this idea that um, a lot of times organizations will look towards machine learning to be like a silver bullet. The problem is, is that uh, there's I kind of think of like there's um, you maintain the burden of the process of detecting throughout the course, whether that's on the detection end or on the like uh, investigation end, let's say. And so uh, if you just are doing a pure uh, like looking like the most you know hyperbolic version is you're looking for pure anomalies. Well, now you're passing a very ill-defined alert to an analyst who now has all the burden as opposed to kind of sharing the burden across detection and, and the subsequent kind of investigation or triage process. And right. so uh, one of the things that you did that you kind of described was you wanted to define very clearly what constitutes lateral movement in the, in the sense that we're looking for. And kind of what you said was this idea of... Um, Generally, when an attacker lands in a network, they're on, they're on a system that's not their ultimate goal, right? Because you might right. use phishing or something along those lines. And, so, and, and they likely don't have access to their ultimate goal. And in order to get, get access, they have to go and compromise other systems so that they could harvest credentials in some way, right? So uh, I think you use Alice and Bob, right, in, your, in the paper. <laughs> and so like, you land on Alice's machine, and Alice doesn't have access to whatever, you know, whatever data you're interested in, right? Credit card data, let's say. Um, but you know that Bob does. And so what the goal is, is to find a machine, let's say that Bob, Bob is logged into that Alice also has access to. And yeah. when you do that, then you can basically assume Bob's identity through whatever you steal his password, you steal his token, Kerberos and golden tickets, whatever, whatever it may be, whatever you talked about. Um, and then you move on to the, to the, uh, kind of ultimate goal. And there's probably, it's way more complicated than that in real life, but really I mean, I, there's this. Yeah. That's the core idea basically. Yeah. And there's like this idea that if you're looking at a 4624, you don't necessarily have, um, you don't have the information about the entire path that was followed. Right. And so what you're doing is kind of like a recursive thing to where you are going through and saying, okay, we know that uh, Bob logged on from system X to system Y. 
but we don't know like was Bob interactively logged onto System X or was there a, a like prior connection from System A, right? And yeah. so like you have to kind of recursively figure that out. It sounds like. Yeah. Exactly. I'd say, I mean, I'd sort of jump in there. I think I really liked your point about, you know, machine learning is not this silver bullet and yeah. the sort of uh, effort around learning and understanding the problem doesn't go away. I think that's probably one of my biggest pet peeves out of how machine learning is sold as like this black box or a silver bullet that will solve everything. And and the truth is like, no, you kind of still have to understand your network and understand the invariance and, uh, and understand what the ML algorithm is learning. Like, I think one of the things I love about uh, Grant's work in machine learning and security <clears> is that <throat> he makes sure to like, the what you learn, you should make sure you understand. Like, there's a large history here uh, around like, you know, we you do this machine learning and then your model has learned something completely different, but it seems to work on the test data. The classic one is, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, I, I don't know if you've heard this story, but I think, I don't know how true also this is, but like the military wanted to detect uh, tanks or aircraft in the air, sorry. The tanks wanted to detect aircraft in the air. And so they used like a bunch of images to train this ML algorithm to detect aircraft in the air. And, and it worked great in the test data, but failed in the field. And when they looked into it, they realized that all the training data had, when there, was, when there were planes in the sky, they were, it was also cloudy. And so all that it learned was if it's cloudy, start alerting. <laughs> and so, and so you, you want to understand what your algorithm has learned, right? And, and, and you know, we, we're laughing right now, but this literally I was reading happened over the last year during the pandemic. You know, some of these uh, algorithms that claimed, oh, we'll tell you if you're COVID positive or not or something like that was learning like the font of the hospital because some hospitals that had more COVID cases, you know, the training data was like, yeah, if you're using this font and this hospital has more COVID cases, then you likely have COVID, right? Like, so understanding what your algorithm is learning is really critical. And like, I think, you know, treating machine learning as a silver bullet, like as a solution, but also as a silver bullet where I don't even have to understand what it's learning is, is a really dangerous pattern. Yeah, I agree. I would say there's a, there's definitely a lot to unpack there. So I want to address a couple of things. I 100% agree with everything you said. I think um, oftentimes whenever inside of an organization, whenever we implement a detection strategy, um, when it's implemented at scale, and then that's typically the strategy that's going to be used for the majority of the detections that are within the environment. However, like to keep in mind, like machine learning is anomaly-based detection, essentially. So that's one detection strategy, right? And then another type of detection strategy would be something you guys did. This I would probably put this under like tactic, um, you know, that ca type of category from a detection strategy. Then you have behavioral, then you have procedural. And it's not that necessarily one is... it. It kind of depends on the organization. So is one strategy better than the other? Yes and no. It all depends on what your organization can handle. And if you're utilizing that data to its full capacity, if you're leveraging that strategy to its full ability, right? I actually uh, heard this really good quote the other day. Um, Anton Shavakin had on a guest on his podcast. Um, I listened to his name is Keith McCammon. He's the one of the leads at Red Canary. And um, he... Um, they're asking, talking about good, the difference between good and great detections and the difference between a good and a great detection is how well you can operate, operationalize it at scale. And I think that's a, that's a really great, great quote. I think that's something that like often gets forgotten. So whenever we do start to test detections and we start to test the, the data that's there and yes, in our test environment, keep in mind, that's a very isolated environment. There's not random things happening that you would see in a normal, normal, like organ organization. And so whenever we write a detection, it's like, oh, I found it in my environment, meaning it's going to fit in someone else's organization. Every organization is different from a behavioral data standpoint. And then also what type of data you can collect at that, that endpoint. 
So it's like, okay, just because I have a 4624 and I'm able to look at the logons, <clears throat> excuse me. And then also maybe let's look at like impersonation for in terms of tokens and maybe even like process creations. Like, oh, I have this in my environment. Awesome. You probably already have, you probably have like the floodgates open in terms of logging capabilities as well. Like that's an indexing issue for a lot of organizations. So what can they utilize? Right. And um, I think that's often something we fall short on in terms of detection engineering, which I think is awesome. You guys addressed inside of your paper. I'm simply like, how do we take this idea and turn it into an at scale implementation? And there's a lot, a lot of work that has to go into something like that. Um, And so I think that's something you guys really nailed on the head there. Yeah, I, I mean, I really love that framing. The you know that like we are focusing on one aspect of detection, like mm-hmm. tactics, but like all aspects of this. The way I see it is, machine learning is a new tool for security people. They should be excited. Like we can use this in so many more places, and every access. Maybe it's the every every letter in CTP we can touch with machine learning. We have more data now, and but like I think as a community, I think there are a lot of sort of lessons or heuristics we should be aware when it comes to machine learning. I would put the you know, the example of like, let's make sure we understand what the model has learned. Let's make sure we are careful around the alert budget. Like there are some meta themes that I think apply everywhere uh, that like your data has to be correct. Doesn't matter what, like machine learning on garbage is going to be garbage. Uh, let's make sure what the model has learned. Uh, all these meta lessons apply in all these cases. But yeah, like our paper is just one thing. Yeah, I'm excited for applying this like tool called machine learning that is getting better and better every day uh, in more places. It, it, it's super exciting time to be in detection engineering. One thing, one thing I'm, I'm really liking that we're talking about is like you're mentioning that we have to understand the algorithm at play, right? Well, there's also another aspect. We have to understand the data at play as well. So we might have the algorithm going and looking for things, but it's going to return some type of data. What does that mean to me as an analyst? What does that mean in terms of context? And um, I think that's super important because it's kind of like a, a two-sided sword there. Well, it's like the algorithm, quote unquote, works. Well, that also, our interpretation of that is also uh, dependent on our deterpre- interpretation of the data that's being returned back to us. And this, this whole issue of data quality, I find really underrated. Like it's such an unsexy topic. Like no one wants to make sure you have all the logs, like what machines are covered. Do we have this log? Do we have that? And, but it's so important to any kind of data algorithm, be it machine learning or rules. Like if you don't know where your data is coming from, if you don't know what data you don't have, I mean, you can't really do much, right? Not, not, to, but, yeah. not to like spoil the story, I guess, but... Um, you you ran a test at the end where uh, I think there was kind of two approaches. One was like let's discover as many let's think up as many lateral movement techniques as we possibly can, and then kind of like figure out what some iterations of those might look like so that we could produce kind of a wide range of different perspectives. And then you also either hired or used a a red team to yeah. like do something that you didn't control all the way, right? Right. Um, and yeah. I was part of that for testing, and part of that was for. Uh, part of it was for training and part of it was for like testing the model. So all of it was used for testing. I think this this approach, so I guess when you think about machine learning, there, there are two approaches. You could do like a supervised one where you, you train it on like actual attacks and, and data or there's like unsupervised, which is you just train it on just random, not random stuff, but like benign stuff with no attacks. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this was sort of the latter. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So where I was going with that is... Um, you detected something like 96% of the attacks. And to your data quality point, I think, uh, from what I gathered from the paper anyway, the issue with the 4% that you didn't detect was not the algorithm. It was the data quality in almost all cases, right? 
Yeah, there was a substantial number of the ones we missed were due to data quality issues, things like attributing it to the wrong owner or you know, thinking something was a client instead of a server and vice versa. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So like that's I mean, that just kind of proves it's like uh, I, don't, I don't know what it was. I think it was like 18 total attacks weren't detected or something yeah, along those lines. Right. Yeah. Uh, less than 20, we'll say. And yeah. uh, something like 13 of them were related to data quality issues, I think. I, I don't know. I'm kind of making those numbers up, but I think it's in the right. That's in the right ballpark. Like, I think yeah. I've rent half at least. Yeah. So that's just telling you that like where you did have issue, like that's telling us, you being generic you. <laughs> Uh, that where there were issues were related like very much to the ability to trust whether or not your infrastructure was producing the logs that you were dependent upon in the first place. And a lot of people, like you mentioned, kind of ignore that because it's not quite as sexy as the, um, you know, the, the, the detection and understanding how attacks work and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a thing. I love talking about data quality. I think that's a huge like thing that's missing in a lot of organizations in the sense of, well, one big thing is, is the endpoint, excuse me, is the endpoint actually sending logs? And at that point, in a timely manner, because I think like one thing that's interesting before I can even get to, let's say your guys's algorithm, right there, the data has to go from point A to point B. And then the algorithm takes time to work. So if that time that it takes for it to actually ingest, it takes a lot of time, then that's only going to slow down the process. And we see that a lot, even outside of machine learning um, organizations to where like, a manual process is done, alert fires, analyst has to go look at it. Well, there's two aspects, right? There's the data has to reach the SIM. The alert has to happen. Once that happens, how long does it take for the analyst to actually address the alert? And then after that, how long does it take for them to actually resolve the alert? And those are all pieces of time that relate back to the attack. And if the attacker is still in the environment, they probably moved around already from there. And there could be another alert somewhere else that you have to address. And so... It all comes, in my opinion, it all comes a lot down to data quality and can we trust the data that's there and can we trust the amount of data that we're ingesting? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll just jump one, you know, I'll just pet peeve there, which like I think Jared, you were saying, you know, like not to not to poop on the party, but but I think like, you know, this is science, right? Like I personally see all papers as like a work in progress, right? Like this is one more thing we have learned and if you break or find flaws in the paper, that's great. We have yeah. learned something new and we'll get to that better, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, like we learned and I, I personally learned the importance of data quality much more starkly. Like, I think it was always like a vague thing in my head, but mm -hmm. then you see it as like, oh my God. <laughs> and so, so, you know, I, I think like it's been useful. Like one of the things we, uh, I personally prioritize now is making sure that, you know, as, uh, uh, as you just mentioned that like, make sure the data is, uh, is coming in. Like, like that should be the first alert. That's not even a hard alert to write, right? Like before worrying about all the extra things you could start logging, like is my agent even sending the like, early ping correctly or am i seeing users who are active whose data i'm not getting right like that could be the first alert and then start enriching with more and more logs and more and more things but like data quality and data like is liveness is something that you know i really prioritize now and, and it's something that i think uh, makes a lot of sense for a lot of organizations i kind of think of it as uh so you have an action that occurs which is a, an, a login happened right and that happened like regardless of whether we collect telemetry on that it happened because it's a real, it's a real phenomenon, right? Um, then the question is, is can we collect, right? I use the term collect to say, can we collect the telemetry that tells us that that, that occurred, right? But at that point, we, have, we don't really have any idea of whether or not um, that login is bad or whatever it may be, right? And then I, like, in this case with logins, it's a little bit more direct because you have like a 4624, which is explicitly a logon. Um, but 
in some cases you might have like I just released a, a blog post where we were talking about this idea of identification, which is um, if we want to know that, for instance, a service was created, which actually kind of coincides with lateral movement because that is a pretty popular lateral movement technique. If we want to know that a service was created, how do we identify that a service was created, right? And so in the in the blog post, what I kind of show is there's an example where I was working with a client and they were using sc.exe slash create. So like looking for any process where the process name is sc.exe and then in the command line it has create. Um, and so I showed over the course of like a two month window, there were 29 examples in this uh, test test range that I was using. Um, and then, but then it's like, okay, well, I did some research to figure out like, how do you definitively know, like what's something that must happen when a service is created? Well, it has to write to the Windows registry, right? Um, and so then I looked for specific registry rights, which would represent a service. And there was like 140,000, right? And so that's like another aspect, which is like, did you, did you collect the appropriate telemetry? But then do you also have an identification step, which tells you definitively that this thing exists, right? And if you, if you filter on the wrong thing, like at the beginning, then you're screwed on the back end, right? Um, and then the next step is classification, which is, I know that 140,000 services were created over a two month window, but how do I differentiate, you know, bad from good or whatever the, the terminology that you, however you classify it, right? Um, which is probably the most difficult part, but if you don't do the quote unquote easier parts first, then your, your classification is going to be flawed from the beginning. So, Right. And the first part is sort of figuring out what, what, I mean, this is something that we it also took a lot of time was figuring out what these different log events mean, right? Because you just have a ton of events here and you're trying to figure out like what has to happen for, you know, uh, for, for this attack to work. And so one of the things I'm, I'm working on a, an, another related project with the UCSD security team right now. And every time we go into a new organization and we work with them, like we're just trying to get an understanding of the data. And something we'll do is we'll just, we'll do the event ourselves with our own credentials. And then we'll look and see like, where are all the different logs that have my username in it when I do this event? Mm. Um, and, and this is something I wish, uh, maybe I, I just because I'm in academia, that no, I wish there were better resources for saying like, what do all these different log events mean? Because we'll see like our names pop up here and there'll be event type whatever, event here and, and whatever logs from Duo. And but, like just getting a sense for like, where are all the logs that should be looking to find this kind of event? And like, here's what this code means. And is it safe to ignore this noise? Like, that's something I wish there was more of that. I, I think it's hard and it's not like a, again, not a sexy topic, but it's yep. like so foundational. Well, yeah, and there's like a, there's kind of like a, a static versus dynamic analysis to understand that, right? So like kind of the, the approach that you just talked about was this dynamic approach, which is I run it and then I go and like kind of see what the, right. it's, correlative right so it's like yeah. okay well i ran this with my account and now i want to see where my account is which yeah. uh and like kind of what your dilemma is is you can't tie that causally to the specific phenomenon that you are interested in or the specific action that you're interested in you just know like you know that it happened when you did this but you don't know if it is because of the thing that you did or if it's just something that It'll always happened. appear like that yeah, yeah like and, one one thing we often see is like if something's ran in powershell if a certain dll is loaded is that a powershellism or is that an actual piece of the action that was actually implemented. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Jared. Then you have like the static approach, which is generally uh, like, can I actually reverse engineer the functionality that tells, or like look into it to make that causal link, I guess. Right. But that, that could be more time intensive or yeah. maybe more difficult or whatever the problem may be. But, um, and both have value, right. In some way. Yeah. Um, but you may discover one, something from one perspective that you wouldn't have, discovered from the other 
and then I think the biggest piece too is like um, correlating, um, you know, research telemetry into scalable telemetry, right? And I think that's a huge aspect that often gets missed um, because oftentimes we'll see an attack will come out and somebody like, oh, have, do you know, know what type of data could like correlate with this? And they'll be like, ETW, ETW. It's like, well, there's not a lot of vendors that, I mean, there are vendors utilizing ETW, but like not to where you can configure the certain provider that you want, right? So it's like, okay, is there any other type of logs, right? And there's a huge process, I think, that goes into that that I think often is not as, like, attractive, per se, as the actual research, so it often gets overlooked. But it's like, um, I went into this when I wrote my uh, RPC research paper, right? It's like, okay, yes, I saw ETW activity. Yes, I saw network activity. Yes, I saw endpoint telemetry. But it's like, how do I give my listeners something that could actually be scalable. It's okay, well, network telemetry Zeke. You know, there's actually, also I think there's a piece of like direct versus indirect data, right? And that goes into um, A, is the data that we're seeing correlating, kind of like you guys were talking about, correlating back to the activity that I just implemented. But then is there like an indirect cause? So it's like, no matter what, if this action happens, is something going to happen underneath no matter like, and they're all just going to funnel. So we often see this with many, like let's say like create process APIs, right? Like it, they're bigger. They might funnel down to a similar like native API function underneath. Right. And that's just an, that's an indirect function. That's not something you as the attacker per se did call, but that's something that's going to happen due to the activity that you just did. And so even aspects like that have um, data that correlate with them. Right. And so then we can leverage that. Like for example, like, RPC utilizes a lot, like interacts with the Windows filtering platform. Because of that, we can utilize Windows filtering platform data to look at RPC telemetry, right, at scale. And I think like um, that's a huge piece. But the question is also like, how do I know what I'm looking at in terms of data? And that comes from looking at data from a raw telemetry standpoint. And then oftentimes when you're like a detection engineer in an environment, looking at it from a standardized perspective, because we're at the one end of the spectrum in terms of the data pipeline or we're at the other, right? And so if we can control that in a test environment, that's often whenever we see people have a lot more understanding of the attack. But if you look inside of an organizational perspective, you're on this side, you're on the right side of the pipeline. So you might not know how they're standardizing it through the process. So you have to make some type of assumption on that data, which oftentimes can shoot ourselves in the foot when it comes to the actual detection engineering process. So, so one of the things that Dev mentioned was that you, um, you kind of, you kind of talked about how you could create a detection rule, we'll call it, um, at the t at any of the level of TTP, right? And I would say, like, tra the one of the interesting things that I'm curious about how you approach this is like traditionally we we kind of have approached we being the industry have approached it at the P level, which is the procedural level, very very granular, specific. Maybe when somebody like writes a rule to detect a specific tool or maybe a specific implementation of something, um, that would be at the P level. The thing that I talked about with like service creation would be more at the T level, which is like, this is a technique that achieves some broader objective and I want to detect that. And that's like, a lot of people will talk about like behavioral based detections and there's kind of this idea that you focus at the, the, the second T level, the technique level. But then uh, I would say that like your approach actually focuses at the big T level, which is tactics, because lateral movement is a tactic as a whole. How did you, um, I guess the question is, how did you decide explicitly from the outset that you wanted to focus on lateral movement itself? 
Um, or did you kind of like start small and then like realize that this could apply across the board or how, like, what was the thought process there? I think we went for loud movement at the start. Um, so typically at least when I do a collaboration with, with a company, I'm trying to think of like, what is a good general enough research problem that's well scoped, but still you know broad enough to have meaning to, to a big enough group. And so we thought about lateral movement specifically, whether we were going to do detection at a more granular level or at this sort of big T tactic level, I think that was still something that took a lot of time. Mm-hmm. You know, we spent a lot of time looking through MITRE and I, I love MITRE. I think, I think it's great. But I think one of the things we noticed with, with lateral movement in particular is you look at the techniques and it's like attackers use SSH. It's like, but like, how are we going to detect lateral movement with like that as like a, you know, little T, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so it took a while to sort of figure out this, this formulation of what it meant to be suspicious and finding paths and, and events that, that met that criteria. Gotcha. So uh, one, of the, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that uh, going back to kind of like, what does the data tell you, right? So you had like, let's just, I know it sounds like you use more than 4624s, you use like SSH logs and other things, but let's just yeah. talk about 4624 sure. for now. Um, the, like, so what, what you had mentioned in the paper, and I think you might've mentioned it at the outset of the, the podcast, but when you start off with like, so you use a 4624 to indicate that a logon has occurred. But that doesn't tell you kind of the whole history of that logon path, I think you call it. And right. so, uh, but what it tells you is like Alice logged in from machine A to machine B. Um, and then like in the paper, you spend some time talking about how you have to go back and kind of recursively look at each, each logon that preceded that. Um, yeah. But there's not necessarily a direct link at every time that tells you, um, hey, okay, before Alice logged on from machine A to machine B, somebody logged on as bot like how do i know that that logon was a result of a previous logon that was machine x to y and it was started with bob can you talk about how you kind of like algorithmically figured that out and like how you presented different options and things like that yeah i mean so this is one of the parts of the paper that i think can be improved on and so we're working at ways to do this but um so we'll start from like the very very start so like when you get a 464 like it's even worse in terms of linking than, oh, I moved from machine A to machine B. Like you have one of the problems that we, we don't go into too much up in the paper is this like namespace, uh, sort of different namespaces. So like if you look at a 4624, you have like the destination where you're logging into as a host name, you have the username, and then you have the source field, but that, that source field is an IP address, right? Mm. And so like you have to map IP addresses first to host names. And like doing this took like, I think it was weeks of work. It, like, it, you know, you have this, I had naively the simple abstraction, like, oh, you have an IP address. I'll just look in DHCP to find the host name. And like, that's not going to work alone. Like you'll get some stuff, but then you'll have all these machines with like reserve leases and stack leases and outside your window. So like you have to draw upon all this other data to figure out like what an IP address is in terms of its host name. Like we had to use DNS data, VPN data, like we had sort of, um, NAC data or ICE data. Um, and so that's like step one is just get all of the different fields in the same namespace. If you and it was, and it was like, what is the, what was the host name of that IP address at the time at of that the time. event? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like the whole time bounded situation is, is tricky. Um, so that's like step one, you got to get all your names in sort of the same space. Um, and then, you know, sort of taking this pointwise event, what we did to link it backwards, you know, was there a previous login that the user made to get here? Um, we just have a very simple technique right now, which is to say, 
Um, if uh, so, so we have a logon from, let's say, we're looking at one logon from machine B to C. Yeah. And we want to know, um, is this the start of a path? Is this the end of the path? Is it just one hop? And so what we'll do is we'll look back in time and we'll say, okay, what are all the logins before this event where the destinations B? So from machine X to B, from machine Y to B, et cetera. So we'll take all those logins that are moving into B, um, sort of in the graph, if you will, and we'll put a time bound on it. So in, in the organization we, we worked with at Dropbox, um, there was this policy, and I think a lot of organizations have a similar policy, the window might be different, where like after 24 hours, any session on the network with SSH or Windows would just be killed, and you have to re-authenticate. Okay, so then we know that um, for all the inbound logons, essentially they had to happen 24 hours prior, assuming this is like a manual attacker. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of a simple heuristic. We'd, we'd, we'd take a login, we'd look at its source, and we try and find all the inbound logins to that source that happened within that time window. Um, and then we sort of iteratively do this backwards. Um, and the hope, hope is that, you know, in your network, you won't have too many machines where you have a lot of inbound users and a lot of outbound users. Because what we do is, you know, we have this list of potential inbound hops, um, and we don't know which one for sure is, is, is sort of causing it. So we make paths for every one of those inbound hops. And so if you have n inbound hops, then you have n paths. And, that can explode sort of exponentially, if you imagine like a tree mm -hmm. fanning out. Um, and, and so that's what we do right now. I think there are fancier ways to maybe infer causality if you look at you know individual host logs. And I think this goes back to one of the points we talked about earlier, which is we were really trying to think about if we have sort of a minimal data set, if you will, yeah. you know, what can we do? So everyone collects 4624s, most people collect SSHG logs. So if we just have those, you know, what can we do in terms of detection? But I think if you looked at maybe on the host itself, you might find better indicators to say, okay, you have 10 people on this machine when the log is being made, but maybe there are other events to figure out exactly which one of those 10 users made that outbound login. Yeah, cool. Okay. Um, and then and then you kind of like, you use that analysis, I'll call it, to kind yeah. of uh, classify a path as a whole as either being, I think there's like a benign classification, yeah. there's like a clear classification, which was we there's basically no conflict here and so we know that this is what it like this is what it is and it yeah. does meet our criteria and then there's uh which you, criteria were uh you changed users and the originating user didn't have access to the to the end resource i think yeah and then yeah. you and then you also had like i don't know what you called it but there's like a suspicious classification yeah unclear i think it's unclear yeah. okay yes and that was basically to where there could have been more than one potential path and we're not 100% sure which of these paths it represents the like actual path I think right yeah yeah so the unclear so, so the clear and unclear the clear was basically we have a lot of paths that could have happened but mm. all of them are weird like mm. the the final hop used bob's credentials and none of the inbound hops are from bob oh okay and so then we know okay there's something weird here going on we don't know which one is the weird one but we know there's a weird thing that happened the unclear is the trickier situation where there's an outbound login using Bob's credentials, and there's a mix. So there's some inbound logins that use Bob credentials, and there are some other ones that didn't. Mm. And so there's a potential that along one of those paths, you know, that's what actually happened, and someone switched credentials. Um, but there's also the possibility that it's just benign. You know, Bob logged into the machine, and there were other users there, and then he made that outbound login too. Um, gotcha. And then uh, you kind of like the way that I gathered was you. For all clear clear paths, so like a benign path means that there's nothing to worry about because there's no indication that anybody laterally moved anyway. 
for yeah. all clear paths, you alerted, right? And then for yes. unclear yes. paths, you had like a secondary kind of uh, algorithm that was running to like de de determine which ones were interesting and which ones weren't, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So this is where Dev, Dev sort of alluded to this earlier, but we had to switch to a budget. And so with the unclear paths, the question is like, what oh, do you yeah. do, right? Like, do you, you, you can't throw all of them at the analyst because that's just to be too much. And so what we did is we had this final step where we sort of ran this, and here's where we used a bit more traditional anomaly detection, if we will. We sort of ran anomaly detection on there and we were like, what are the weirdest paths among the unclear ones? And let's sort of rank them, right? And then what, what Dev was alluding to is, our, our model here, and this came from prior experience and other research we've done, is I think a lot of organizations where you imagine this being used are going to have their own you know, soccer incident response team. And at a lot of these places, what you'll have is, at least from what we've experienced, is you'll have engineers who write detection rules. And typically they say, okay, you know, in order for us to productionize this rule, it, it can't generate more than this number of false positives per day, because you know, that's what we're willing to tolerate. And this is sort of where the budget comes in. We said, well, if we have this detector in place, you can imagine the system as being like another fancier rule. And the analyst can say, okay, I want to look at the N most weird paths per day. Mm. And so that's where we do this. We have the unclear paths, we run anomaly detection, we rank them, and then we find like the N weirdest each day <clears throat> that we alert on. Gotcha. And, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Johnny. I'll let yeah. you. I'm curious your guys' thoughts on how the process flow went from, okay, we have this piece of data, it seems kind of weird. Um, and then going from that to the priority problem set and then to the classification problem set. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we see in organizations, it seems like it's a little premature, it happens pretty prematurely where um, a data set will be get classified as either, you know, high, medium, low, or, you know, malicious or benign. But oftentimes I, I seem to kind of lean on the side of the thought process of if you classify the data set too early, you are applying an, a bias to that data set that doesn't necessarily need to be there quite yet. So how do we go take the context from as much data as we can, apply it back to this data set? And then you mentioned you added some type of scoring, I believe it was, to it yeah. um, before passing off. So I'm curious how you guys did that because I think that's super important and often missed where you're adding a priority back to that before adding a classification to it. Yeah, so this prioritization came from some from prior work I did. Basically, the idea is if you think about a lot of the features or signals we write, they're kind of like numeric, right? Like how many times has you logged in from this IP address, right? And 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 so we call this sort of a suspiciousness or like a, a fancier term monotonicity where like if, you, if you're trying to classify things, one way to do it is you can say like how weird is this event relative to the prior events? And so like our scoring here is basically just a count of like we have these different features um, how weird is this event relative to all the prior events? And so, so you're basically like counting how many events is this weirder than in the past? Okay. And the weirdness comes from like, we have numeric features. So like, I think one of them is like, how many times has this exact path between these machines happened before? And so that's a feature where you count, you know, how many prior days have we seen this path? And so if you're looking at a month of data, you, if we just think about this feature, you have values from zero to 31. Right, where like zero is the weirdest. You've never seen this path before, and 31 is the highest, like uh, most benign, right? And so the way we did this is we're like, let's look at a chunk of data. Let's see what like that distribution is like in terms of all the prior paths we've seen. So like, you know, 10 paths have zero, 100 paths have one, et cetera, et cetera. And then our score is just a count of like how much data is to like the left of your distribution. 
Like how many things are weirder than you previously? If that gotcha. makes sense. So the, the general idea is it's like um, there's no way to know for sure whether a path at at the point that you're running your algorithm, there's no point no way to know for sure that a path is malicious or benign. Right. And and uh, the general idea is, is the reason why we're using detections in the first place is because we don't have an infinite capacity to deal with alerts, right? Right. And so we need a way to figure that out. And so the general idea is, is you allow this the SOC basically or wh- whomever is responding to the alerts to define their threshold of of alerts, right? Um, yeah. That they're that they're willing to deal with, and that has to be considered amongst all of their detections, not just this one detection, right? So like we're going to we really believe that lateral movement's a big threat and like probably very uh, something that happens in almost every use case or every attack that ever happens. So like maybe we want to give more of our our threshold to that or more of our budget i guess to that um but like we have to consider that amongst everything else that we do and then yeah. and then the idea is, is that um they set the threshold and you can't actually know um something that scored a 10 out of 100 is is benign it's just right. less likely to be malicious than something that scored a 90 out of 100 and so now yeah. you're just saying we're going to give you what what we give you yeah or what you exactly ask for. Right. yeah yeah and the paper sort of what I tried to describe, probably not clearly, is like the scoring. There, there are a lot of different ways to do scores, and like we have a way that we think works in the paper. But like that's the gist: is you know, at the high level, you have some scoring algorithm there, and you follow exactly what you said, where analyst says, "Hey, we have this amount of you know capacity," and then the scoring algorithm's job is just to say, "Look, we don't know what's benign, what's malicious, but here, you know, relatively speaking, is what we think is the weirdest." And then you had like in the paper, I think you included a uh, chart that showed based on your budget, what's the like false positive, false or true positive rate, I guess. Yeah. Um, yep. Which which then ba- I think it can, kind of converged around. Uh, well, the paper kind of says at nine alerts per day is kind of when it converges around like you basically detected everything for the most yeah. part. Or yeah. the marginal yeah. gain of more alerts is relatively small. Yep. Yep. Sorry, Dev, it looked like you had something. Uh, I think uh, another thing that I really loved, I think that uh, Grant, uh, being humble, is glossing over is uh, I think the, 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 there was a key moment there, inside there, which is that, you know, we have knowledge as security and detection engineers that we can apply and put in use when it comes to machine learning, right? So the example he gave was our data is directional and monotonic that a 32, 32 failed logins, I'm just making up an example, 32 failed logins are much, much, much worse than five failed logins. And and that's a number and every increase is like has a meaning to it. Whereas a lot of time, if you blindly just take a machine learning algorithms, which are usually designed for like uh, categorization, they'll just say, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, each of them is a category. And they'll not realize that this is a number and the fact that its value is increasing has a particular meaning. And so mm. that's where another example that I feel like, you know, we as security engineers and detection engineers can really uh, leverage machine learning algorithms if we know that you know in this case this is this monotonically increasing value and my algorithm should make sure to understand that and and again make sure we understand what the ml model has learned because you know looking at the output and looking at the ml model if it if it's treating the count as just a category that you know five is the same as 31 and 30 like that's not like it should understand that it's a uh-huh. count and it's increasing and i think that's important also that's again another place where our knowledge domain knowledge can be a really powerful add-on so kind of what you're getting at is that um let's say for whatever reason 31 is less frequent like it occurs less in less paths than 5 that doesn't mean that it's like it's more anomalous but it's actually probably means that it's less likely to be bad 
I guess. So if you went purely anomal like anomaly based, 31 would appear to be more anomalous, but it's not actually more bad like well it's probably not more bad. Hopefully not more bad, I guess. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. It's sort of okay. that, like anomaly detection looks for like rare values, rare things, but like the numbers themselves have meaning, right? Yep. And their relationship with each other. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Um one thing that you kind of mentioned, so you you gave us this may be actually really complex. I genuinely have no idea how this happens and I'm curious like I'm really <laughs> curious, but you mentioned one feature. So like for those that aren't familiar, I'm I'm not a machine learning expert at all, but like I know like a feature is basically some contextual information that you use to evaluate something in the algorithm, right? And yeah, you generally yeah. want numerous features and like some algorithms have like thousands of features, right? And like right. they could be and so um when you're like so the way that you, you described like looking at one feature and if you if it's only happened zero previous days in the month then that's one thing and then if it happened 31 previous days in the month then that's like a completely different thing and we like i think if we're thinking about a single variable it's very easy for us to identify yeah. how that works how do you how do you apply multiple variables and how like i assume that different vari like different features are weighted differently as well so that's one thing that we could do to improve things. We don't do it right now because okay. it's hard to figure out what the weight should be. Yeah. But like this is sort of something we're thinking about. And more broadly, I'll put in the plug here. Like if you have a lot of data or a lot of detection rules and you're like, I want an algorithm that's X better, like I I you know academics love publishing on real data, so like get in touch. But um so I think the way we do it right now is pretty simple where we sort of have a bunch of these different features. We compute like a count for each of them, if you will, like how much of the previous data are you weirder than? Mm -hmm. And then we effectively just multiply that. Like we, we make it a probability mm -hmm. and we just multiply it all together across all our features to get one score. Um, you could do fancier things like write like an actual function, like you could sum them with weights or multiply them with weights. Um, we don't do that right now in the paper. It's just a very simple compute each, each, each score for each feature and then just multiply them. Gotcha. I will add there, like I think Jared, sorry to pick on you, it's my pet peeve here. Uh, like it's not necessarily always the case that more features are better. I think like you mm -hmm. referenced that, right? And it's not like actually a lot of the work I think that Grant did that was really powerful was like being very thoughtful about which features mm -hmm. will make sense. And I think again, like we as security engineers can really provide tremendous value there of, you know, what makes sense? What is something that an attacker will actually show? And to to take it to the extreme, right? The examples I gave earlier, you know, whether or not the day is cloudy mm -hmm. is not a feature that we should use, even if it looks like it will be useful or whether or not, you know, the font is Times New Roman or not is not a feature we should use. And so so I think like, uh, you know, as security engineers, we can really say, okay, these are the features that make sense. And so I think a lot of the work uh, goes into what I call like feature engineering, mm -hmm. like understanding those features and making sure you extract what is important, getting them to be like meaning in the numbers and stuff like that. Uh, that again, like, like you know, the, the concept of taking a bunch of data and features and creating a model now is becoming increasingly like, you know, AWS has enough tools for you to do that. The, the power of a security engineer comes from like that feature engineering. What features make sense? How do I make the data high quality and stuff like that? So you, uh, I guess like, so it's simultaneously true <clears throat> that you can have too few features to make a valuable delineation, but you can also like having more features doesn't just get to the point to where a new feature has a like a minimal marginal marginal value but it actually can have a negative impact in the conclusion is yeah. like the cloud or the times new Roman example. Like you added a new feature, which was the font of the, of the document, I don't know, whatever. And that actually caused 
a degradation in the accuracy of the model as opposed to it just didn't add something which might be the conclusion that somebody might reach is that oh i could add everything and then like if it doesn't matter it doesn't matter but then i th- i think what what happens is you you might like in the feature engineering process you might identify like every feature you can imagine and then you might run the algorithm multiple times across the data set with different sets of features to kind of evaluate which ones give you the best result is that accurate like an accurate estimation that's i think how most people in machine learning would approach this i think there's also a caveat it's not just um sort of natural degradation what i what i worry about is when you throw I, I think your point is exactly right there's a sweet spot having too few is not going to work having too many could hurt things a because you could learn random things but b you know we're in, we're in an adversarial environment and so you never know if mm. you throw in some random other noisy features if an attacker just does something a little bit differently Maybe the model with all this other noisy feature is going to say, "Oh, you know, this is actually fine. You know, it looks okay." Um, and so that's another worry that I have. Is oh man, okay. So then the question is, like, when you're thinking about the features, you almost want to consider which features does the attacker have the least control over. Yeah, and I think I actually listened to some of the other podcasts. I think you had a discussion about decomposition and thinking about mm-hmm. decomposing the attacks. And I think. I think that's the way I would think about it. It's sort of like what is, and that's how we tried to approach this. Like, what is critical for an attacker to do, and let's write features that really target that sort of fundamental aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing, yeah, I, oh, go ahead, Johnny. One, one thing I want to touch on this. You guys kind of have brought it up, and it's kind of been in my mind. You guys have been talking about features. Is when it comes to um, applying these detection strategies inside an organization, um, it's never just a one and done process. There's always going to be another attack that came out that we learned something else and that we can apply back into the detection itself. And I think that's something important because Grant, you mentioned that I think way in the beginning of the podcast when we were just talking about the thought process in general and you mentioned like if anybody has any other ideas, let us know. I think that's a huge aspect that often gets overstepped because once we get done writing detection, we're okay, boom, this strategy is put in place, let's move on. And then coming back to that strategy and saying, how can we better these features? How can we better and optimize this process doesn't happen as often as it probably should. And I think, I think that also relates to your point about, um, you talked about when do you classify things too early in the pipeline? Like I, I as like a data person, like I, I want to save as much data as I can because then you can revisit it with these other ideas and be like, okay, now if we add this, how, does, how do things change? Maybe I can you know, increase this thing that I used to throw out and actually take it and generate alerts for it now. Um, yeah, so I think that's spot on. I yeah, I think that's... Also... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Dev. Oh, I was going to say like another reason why it's not one and done is we are in like, you know, tech is changing continuously, mm-hmm. right? Like we wrote this paper about lateral movement inside an enterprise network, like, you know, standard thing that we all talk about. But, you know, the I, I remember reading the electronic arts, uh, the, the breach uh, that had happened recently. In a way, that was lateral movement, right? Like they got one Slack token, used that to get to help test to escalate privileges, then get to GitHub. Uh, or whatever their internal code mm-hmm. uh, repository was, uh, that's also lateral movement. I would call that lateral movement. Now, it's not classic lateral movement. Our, yep. uh, pro- our algorithm won't detect it. And so I think that's another reason where like things are completely changing continuously, right? Like the tech we use, uh, the software we use is changing. So another place where it's like, you know, the, the fundamentals and the idea of like, this is how we design features and this is how we use ML is really critical because, uh, you know, things are changing a lot. So so I think there's one more factor where it's changing. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's important too. Um, I really like what you mentioned there because you mentioned that your algorithm wouldn't detect that type of lateral movement and identifying blind spots and the gaps inside of our ter- certain or specific detections as they are now is also something that's very hard because it's one of those things. It's like 
if I write a paper, fun fact about me, I'm I'm terrible at writing in general. Um, that's what happens when you go to school in Missouri, I guess. Um, but anyways, um, I'm terrible at writing papers. So if I read a paper, I'm like, oh, damn, nothing's wrong with this paper. It looks great. You know, I've, I've read, reread it like five times. I pass it to Luke and he's like, is this kindergarten chicken scratch? Like, what is this? And I think that's something that's like, when you go back and you look at your work, especially in detection, you are typically very proud of what you just did. And it's hard to kind of take away that bias to that detection and say, what could I better this? Or in the future, when you look at it, it's like, oh, how could I better this feature in a certain and optimize it better? Or how do I apply a different strategy to, to overcover that type of gap that's already there, or that blind spot? And I think that's very hard to do when it's you. And then that's why I think it's super important to have like a, a detection, detection review process whenever you just have another engineer look at it. Because whenever there, I, I, I'm a big data guy as well. And I definitely believe that if we utilize the data to its full capacity, we typically can understand the context and, in, and most importantly, understand the intent behind what the behavior was. But in order to do that, we have to overlap strategies. We have to um, not just apply one to a specific detection. We have to apply many. And whenever that happens, we start to cover the gaps and the blind spots that were put in place by the, the strategy beforehand. That doesn't mean, this goes back to our conversation earlier, but it doesn't mean one strategy is necessarily better or worse, right. right? It just means that we need to overlap them in order to fully get the context and fully get the coverage that we truly expect because I'm kind of rambling here, but whenever the detection is put in place, we often see that people just feel like they have like a, a safe jacket on at that point. And it's like, okay, I'm covered when it comes to, I don't know, Kerber roasting. It's like, eh, are you though? It's like, Time's oh, a, I, Time's a good indicator on that. If I look back seven years to what I did seven years ago, I think like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> this is not very smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I guess in the short run, you, you should also have something to protect against that as well. Exactly, yeah. Because there's things like whenever I look back at past detections or logics that I wrote, I'm like, Oh shit, that's <laughs> let me just go ahead and reinvent the wheel there. And it's like that's sometimes it's easy if you're if you're if you're passionate enough, that's easy. But oftentimes I see in sort of organizations when the resources aren't there to constantly develop the detections, revisit the detections, and then like resolve the alerts that happen with those detections. The let's go back and like re like review the strategy often just kind of gets pushed underneath the rug and it's like, okay, hey, we're covered, let's move on. Because they just don't have the resources to go back and do that in an effective manner. And I think one of the challenges, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, organizations that are sort of long-lived, like at a certain point, it becomes almost daunting to do this review, right? Because you'll, you'll inherit the system with like 500 alerts of rules and splunk, and you're like, where do we even begin, right? Like, Yeah. I think Luke, I, nice. I think Luke yeah, had Luke. something to add. Yeah. I have a I stupid question. That's what I have. Um, earlier, like I, it was either earlier this week or last week, Jared and I had a long conversation because someone, um, we read a tweet that kind of like launched us into this, essentially saying that um, that it's really important for analysts to be able to tell what's not normal in a data set. Something that's abnormal is like a key thing. Um, and I think that that's something that computers in general and machine learning is very good at is picking the thing out of a data set that's not the same as the other ones. Uh, but I was just curious as someone who knows less than Jared about uh, machine learning is how 
how anomalies can get handled. Something like uh, an administrator logs into a server every single day, every month, but he does it today, but today he's not in the office. Like a, an algorithm doesn't know that. A human who maybe would see that would know that. So if we're relying on machine learning to handle that, it looks like the same thing he's done for 30 other days in the month, but today he's not here. To be clear real quick, Luke said he knows less than me, but I don't know a lot. So that just to frame the <laughs> yeah, conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was also insulting Jared with my comments. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so the question like how, how, how do you how do you train like a model to learn that or like yeah like how could you get machine learning to like i don't know kind of have the intuition that maybe a human would looking at the same data because obviously a human can't look at every ssh login but machine learning can so how can you teach it those things that look normal but they just happen to not be they're emulating normal if you will so i think there may be two schools of thought on this i am I'm someone who appreciates machine learning, but I'm, I'm skeptical. And so, like, there's a there's a new vein of machine learning that, like, they call it end-to-end -end learning. And the idea is you just throw out a bunch of data with a bunch of different attributes. Like, you don't try and craft any features. You just throw a bunch of stuff at it. And then it learns what are the important kinds of features to look for. So, like, if you threw out a bunch of login data, it's somehow going to figure out that, like, oh, I need to look at this IP address. I need to geolocate it. And I need to look at, like, the days this is happening. And I'm going to combine all that automatically to tell you, oh, like this new login is coming from a weird place at a weird time. Um, I have yet to, to see this in practice, so I am a bit skeptical. I think the way you would traditionally do this is you would, I, I think there is still a human in the loop. And this is when we kept, keep talking about features, like a human's going to have to go through and like translate this raw log event into like a set of features. So like you're going to have to go and say, one thing you need to look for is like this city and the city or the IP address that the user is coming from is like one feature. And that's going to be its category. It can be, you know, Berkeley, it can be San Francisco, all these different values. And then you have like the date maybe and the username. And then you're going to say, okay, these three features, I'm going to give it to my model. And then there are different kinds of models you can train. But like with those three features, it can then learn, oh, it's very common for this user to be logging in every day with this username and from the city. But like now when I have a new event and the city is different, that's going to be like weird. That's anomalous because I haven't seen that combination before. Have, um, have you guys ever seen a threshold by which like something that is suspicious or noteworthy has crossed the threshold of being not normal to normal inside of an environment? And then if so, like how do, have you guys like addressed that in terms of the algorithm or the machine learning? Yeah, so this is like, um, like formerly I think it's called a like concept trip, but the idea is like over time, you know, things change with your data. So like you might have, let's for instance, say like a new office open up and like, you know, you've just launched an office, I don't know, in, in Beijing, right? And so like when you first get users logging in from it, that's going to be weird because like no one's logging in from there before and like your system might fire a bunch over time. But like as that office settles in and you get more and more users logging in, then that's going to be normal. And I think the way we traditionally handle this is you 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 retrain your model. So like you take you know the past month of data, and every at the first day of every month you like train it on this new recent month of data. Mm. Like so, you have the sliding window of like what you're training your model on to make sure it sort of like keeps up to date with your environment. If that makes sense. 
I have maybe like a one anecdote and then I'll add on to uh, what Grant said. So one anecdote on that is the uh, you know, common alert uh, we had uh, was, uh, you know, we're seeing like, let's say 50,000 users logging in at uh, 10 a.m. on Wednesday. So let's compare that to Wednesday last week. And that's a very common alert that like, okay, suddenly if like instead of 50,000, like 200,000 are logging in, that's suspicious. So there's something off going on. This is at the like account takeover prevention layer. And uh, every year, uh, daylight saving time <laughs> because uh, you know 9 a.m is workday start so you see a lot of people logging in and then every year you know suddenly one week ago like because you're comparing UTCs mm-hmm. uh, you know subtracting seven weeks a uh, one week worth of time every year at daylight saving time this alert would go off for us and that is an example where it was anomalous humans knew what was happening but it happened once a year uh, we are kind of like well fixing the algorithm and <laughs> everything is too much pain so let's just live with it have you guys uh, have you guys seen the uh, the YouTube video about the guy that tried to write the program for dealing with time zones? The computer <laughs> oh file. I, I can sounds, just imagine. That's a horror movie I've seen. Right <laughs> it's like a sat- satirical thing, but he just like goes crazy because oh, it's God. like, you know, there's some that are like 45 minutes instead of an hour and all kinds oh, of stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's uh, but I think like, you know, riffing off of what Grant said, like I think uh, that's where it's actually an extreme example, but like really what we're seeing is that put human in the loop of the machine learning system. An end-to-end system which doesn't understand that there's human in the loop will try to correct for this and it will be really, really hard and then the, mach- the system will be very noisy. But like, you know, you let the algorithm say, okay, this looks anomalous to me and the human can say, oh, this is fine. Human can say, you need to retrain. But like once you embrace that, like look, whatever happens in security because of all the edge cases and because of the amount of data, you just need to have a human in the loop. The machine learning, the data is a way to augment that and make this, yeah. these humans more effective. And and once you embrace that, rather than go after this like machine learning as a silver bullet that will solve everything, uh, even once you embrace, they like no, it's just another tool for humans to be more effective. Then we believe you can build much stronger and much more robust uh, detection engineering. Yeah, I think one one thing that kind of makes me think of this, and I could just be totally off and left field, but um, I'm curious if, you know, the human element is super important there, um, not only because I think it's important to have a human element in terms of like classifying data or looking at the data and understanding what's going on there, but in terms of context, but I'm curious if like attackers know, I know the time-based thing is kind of an extreme example, but it kind of got, got me thinking here. If they know with many like machine learning algorithms, the time based is an issue. And so they try to blend in with that activity, knowing that it's going to arise there. And so then you would then have the human element because the algorithm is going to alert on everything. But the human element can kind of sift through it all and be like, whoa, like what's going on here? Like that type of stuff. But oftentimes, whenever in organizations, when we see the the attempt to fight false positives, it's just more like, oh, I see this X amount of times. Go ahead and just block it right and so it doesn't show up in the algorithm or the logic and then it's like well there's this false negative sitting in the pile here that you just totally allowed and that kind of goes back into i wrote like a blog a while back about like um evasion classifications and it's kind of like a you have like a piece there where you have like a logic bypass because like the algorithm isn't picking it up or it's technically picking it up but it's not showing as anomaly based right and then you then have the analyst piece to where it's just kind of like they just flooded the gates and like just like, okay, we're just going to take this pack, toss it off to the side, not worry about it, just to save time because I'm dealing with all this other stuff there at one time. Oh, right. boy. I mean, we can talk about this for so long. I'm <laughs> really into this topic. I'll give you a great example that for me was really funny. Was uh, So, you know, email spam, right? Email spam is the classic, like, machine learning. Look, it worked really well. Uh, 
you can imagine that uh, you know i really don't want you to get an email that talks about you know, whatever jared is doing something like uh, or like you know uh, spotify wants to buy your podcast and so what i do is i start sending you an email that uh, at the bottom on white text over white background says spotify 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 <laughs> but the actual clear text that you can read says whatever canadian pharmacy or like you know free bitcoin and uh, and so you keep marking it as spam uh, because you think that this is spam and over time your algorithm learns that anything with the text spotify 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 at the bottom is spam and uh, and now any email from spotify will go to your spam and that's why we haven't <laughs> that's why we haven't heard from spotify for <laughs> <laughs> But like this is real, right? Like, and I think yeah. the meta lesson there is like, yeah, the analyst needs to understand what they are doing when they mark something as a false positive, and what's the impact on that. And again, going back to, do we understand what the ML model is actually learning? That when I marked it as spam, has the ML model actually learned that you know free Bitcoin is what I want to mark as spam, or has it learned Spotify is what I'm marking as spam? Mm. So like, I think that, the, to me, that underlines the lesson of like no we really need to make sure we understand what this uh, machine learning models have learned i think yeah uh, that's a that's a really good point that you've made now two two ways you've made it in the inverse and in the in the i don't know what the other word for that is but essentially you've said that humans need to be involved with what the algorithm decides to show you and i think the point that you've made there is that the that humans also need to be involved in um some level of quality control of what the algorithm decides not to show you as well. So right. you can't just say, yeah, everything like above X is suspicious, uh, show that to a human, everything else we just dump in the trash. Because if you didn't have that testing and you didn't have that QA, you would, you know, deploy the thing to the field. And if there's clouds, there's no airplanes. And right. So then, yeah, it works. There's, there's no airplanes up there. We're good. But I think, um, it needs to only be trusted as far as you can verify it. Right. One? Yeah, like, oh, like go ahead. it's really humans need to be involved. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just just, to, just to leave it at that. Yeah. Like, right, yes. yeah, right. Like and 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 that that's great. I mean, that's exciting. And but yeah, like it's not a silver bullet. I think that's really the main. Yeah. One thing that one thing that Johnny and I learned, we were doing a non-machine learning project, but it was it involved correlating data and gathering like features basically to be able to make some not like some, you know, whatever algorithmic decision. Um but what we what we found is we had a tendency to just try to automate it without going through it manually. And what we found is that you you almost inevitably need to like piece everything together manually numerous times to make sure that the logic flows properly before you try to automate everything. So I I just imagine you getting a forty six twenty four and then like going back and searching one by one to pull up all the correlating like the the entire path. And then you're like, okay, I did that manually. And this is what I should learn from that. Okay, let me do it again. And you kind of go through it. And then after you've done it a hundred times and you're like, okay, let's just run this whole thing against everything and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of one of the, the best tips and sort of my, my toolkit that I've learned from my advisors, Vern, who, who actually was the inventor of Zeek or CoreLite, okay. um, yeah. is sort of when you're looking at data, you always want to start by getting really close to it. So look at a couple of samples, make sure you understand it manually before you try and run something automated. Because without that understanding, you don't know what you're going to get at the end of the day. Hmm. Going, uh, going back to the, the uh, so like I'm, I'm really interested in the idea of like an attacker kind of attacking the model, right? Yeah. Um, I think there's like I've heard that there's like a emerging field of machine learning that's like uh, adversarial machine learning, right? And so like yeah. the idea is is that 
if you could reverse out the features that are being used in the model, then you can figure out which features you can influence. And then like, well, A, you could replicate the model, which like ideally in some cases, the, the people running, you know, that like, let's say a vendor is using a model to classify malware or something like that. They might not want you to be able to test whether or not their model is going to catch something proactively. Right. So like, uh, that's like, we, we see this with, um, like virus total. So like one of the benefits of virus total that for an attacker might be that they could run their, their payload and then see if it pops up on all these different virus, uh, antivirus programs. And then they know, okay, at least I don't have to worry about the antivirus, but you could expand that beyond antivirus to like any machine learning algorithm. Right. Um, and so like in order to do that, I would need to like understand what the features are, but the, the cool thing you, you talked about how you wanted to use like kind of what is the minimal set of telemetry that I need to be able to make this decision. And part of that was like a practical reason because now I can implement this in as, as broadly as possible and as many networks as possible, right? So there's like a practical right. aspect. Um, well, actually, I think they're both practical to some degree, but the <laughs> other aspect is um, like you're choosing, let's, let's say you're using, I know you're using more than this, but let's say you're, you kind of have like four main parts, which are like source computer, destination computer, source user, destination user, I think. Um, yeah. And those inherently, like an attacker does control those in the sense that like they can choose to move using a specific user context to a specific system, but they don't control it in the sense that if they want to achieve their objective, they don't necessarily get to choose not like they have to do it right. right? Like, right. and so they don't have influence over it, which like a lot of times what I find when we create detections, uh, like in a traditional way, what we'll do is we'll look at like a process command line, like I talked about earlier. And a process command line is entirely in the control of the attacker, right? right? So they they can influence literally everything about how you how you look at that, and they can like there's uh, Daniel Bohannon has a great project called uh, Invoke Obfuscation, which talks about how you could obfuscate command lines and then basically have it do a thing that you want it to do. Well, it doesn't appear to do the thing that you want it to do, right? Um, yeah. And so that's that's something that we always like need to think about in detection is how much control does somebody have over this field, and like you know, how can we, how much do we trust the input that we're being given? Right. Yeah. No, I think that's spot on. Yeah. I think when it comes to that is, <clears throat> I think that's just, I think it goes to like, maybe whenever we look at like detection scoping. Right. And I want to touch on two things here because like, is alerting on specific command line parameters necessarily a terrible, like, solution to go with no it's just one strategy is like alerting specifically on like a signature of mimicats bad no i mean get the low-hanging fruit where you can but like don't stop there you know you want to continuously do more do better in terms of the the strategy at hand there i think that's a i think that's a huge piece too and then understanding again like we keep talking about day to day data but it's like if i look at a process command line right like what are the odds that that's going to give me the same context in terms of a detection that a you know, a behavioral detection is going to give me on a technique basis. I'm probably going to be able to pull more data from a technique perspective simply because I can attach a lot more things to it. If I'm looking at a procedural base, well, I'm all the way to the right, right? So I have to basically build backwards. Or if I'm doing like a behavioral thing, I might be able to spread out from there. And I think that's where we start to look at data and how to overlap that together. You guys kept talking also about like having a human element. I couldn't agree more on this topic. Um, this is something like I like, I've talked about it a lot. I think I'm, I feel pretty strongly about it. It's like, when you think about the detection and response process, right, from point A to point B, at what point can you apply automation? And this kind of goes back to what Jared was talking about in that project that we worked on together. It's like, 
at what pieces can you actually apply automation? And I think machine learning kind of like moves into that category. And what I think is you can do it in terms of triage when adding context or even from like a detection perspective, like, hey, alert when something's weird happening, right? You can do it there. But when it comes to actually responding to the alert, oftentimes we've seen, I don't say oftentimes, there has been some like situations where people have wanted to automate the investigation process mm. to kind of like deal with the high volume of alerts that are happening. A human element has to be applied to that because only a human is going to be able to say, this looks weird. Let me dive and get into this rabbit hole. A machine's going to look at it and be like, or an automation. And you have to keep in mind, like all these algorithms are human based anyways. And so whenever you start to apply a human element to this, you start to look at it more granular from a piece per speed, piece per piece perspective, right? Like, I'm not looking at it from an oh, stop laughing at me, Jerry. Well, so, like, you not, alliterated, so it's like piece per piece. Listen, per words are hard, man. I I'm from Missouri, man. Just run with it. Okay. Anyway, so if we do it from a categorization perspective, right? I'm just overlapping like my element to that whole category and hoping like x amount of times it's going to work out. Where if I'm looking at it from a granular piece, I can apply my human element to it every time. And that human element can change. My decisions can change dependent on the data that's there. And I think that's the important part to remember when we add a human element to the investigation process. For sure. Cool. All right, guys. Well, uh, we have about five more minutes. And I wanted to give uh, both of you a chance to kind of, you know, say anything that you feel that we missed. Or maybe, like, I know, Grant, for instance, you you would be very interested in getting some real-life data from other people if people are interested so like if you have something that you're interested in promoting or if you have something that we you think we missed that is interesting that's on your mind uh, i want to make sure that we give you time to kind of talk about that or uh, you know bring it to our attention sure i will shamelessly plug um i guess i i work with a bunch of students and faculty at san diego and so we are very interested in studying real-world security problems with real-world data. Um, so if you, if you have a topic that you think is a pain point for you guys or is unsolved or you don't know how to do, um, we love working with data. We love working with sort of real companies and real problems. So definitely reach out. Um, we'd be happy to sort of look into it and, and hopefully work together. Awesome. And from my side, you know, I'm pretty passionate about uh, what data can do and what big data can do for security and detection engineering. Uh, uh, you know, Dropbox is an amazing place to work. So I know Dropbox is hiring. And so consider applying there, but also Figma where I am currently is also hiring. And so, yeah, if you want to work on this sort of stuff, uh, Figma is a great place to work. Please apply or reach out to me. And uh, I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, everywhere. And yeah, uh, we'd love to hear more. And if you have thoughts, I'm always like uh, happy to learn more. Both me and Grant would love to learn. So yeah, uh, just don't hesitate. Just reach out. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about what Figma does? Oh, yeah. Figma is a design tool uh, in the browser. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's a collaborative design tool thing like Adobe Photoshop or Adobe InVision. Uh, oh, okay. uh, and, uh, and yeah, it's pretty popular. So like I would bet pretty much every piece of software that you're using is probably designed in Figma. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, or I would guess 80% or 70% of their sure. software you're using is probably designed. Everything popular you can think of is designed in Figma, <laughs> I suspect. Gotcha. Uh, and so, yeah, it's super exciting. Lots of hard, challenging problems. And 
we're growing very fast. So we'd love to talk to uh, uh, great people. Awesome. Yeah, and we'll, uh, yeah, so like, like Dev mentioned, uh, Dropbox was the kind of source for this research to some degree. So these, these guys yep. worked on the research but in collaboration with Dropbox to kind of get that real life data and be able to like codify kind of the approach. Um, and so, you know, thanks to them for allowing the, the re research to be published, right? Because that Absolutely. informs everybody, right? So it's uh, really helpful. It's also like, I mean, that's a big company, right? So that, that means that it's probably pretty representative of something that can be used in real life. So that makes us feel like that, that reads to me as being pretty, pretty important. And then uh, we'll make sure to post both the slides. Uh, so you, you gave a presentation at Usenix a couple weeks yeah. ago, maybe. Yeah. And so your slides are online and the, the paper. Um, and yeah. so slides might be kind of a good way to get a general idea, uh, recap of kind of what we talked about, but what the approach was, what the results were. Um, and then if you want to know kind of the nitty gritty, the paper is, is a good read as well. So um, we'll make sure to make that available. And thank you, Dev and Grant, for, for your time. It was really informative. And I just, I can't emphasize enough how valuable I think it is for us to start looking at infosec from a more academic perspective right so there's there tends to be kind of a divide i think we were talking about this earlier between the academic perspective and the practitioner perspective i guess whatever that means um and a lot of times i hear like we're consultants right so we kind of interact with a lot of people and we get the like oh you know infosec is an art form and i think like in in my mind my gut feeling is like it's actually not an art form we just don't have the academic rigor to be able to prove it scientifically and like you think about every other science scientific kind of domain there's there's literature that we could all refer to and like we kind of as a group define kind of like what the, what the perspective or what the right answer or most right answer might be and i think that uh practitioners and academics coming together to to make that more formal i think is a really valuable thing so uh, if you have the ability, work with Grant to try to like work through these problems because that that helps That'd everybody. Be awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just note that you know uh, I think uh, Johnny mentioned Zeke and but uh, Zeke was created out of an academic project. Uh, Grant's yeah. advisor and a co-author on this paper is the inventor of Zeke one, and uh, it's been pretty useful. <laughs> yeah, and so sure. uh, you know I I think uh, collaboration between the real world industry and academia. This can be very, very fruitful. And so I'm, I'm excited to see that. Awesome. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more on that. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Yeah, thank Thanks you. Thanks so much for having us. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Same. Thank you. Yep. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Detection Challenging Paradigms. If you want to keep up with us, you can do so on Twitter at DCP the Podcast or on our website, dcppodcast.com, where you'll find links to all previous episodes and their episode guides, as well as to our store where 100% of our proceeds benefit charity. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.